These are institutions in our life, Alan. These sports that we love are institutions in our life. And they have to be tinkered with very gently. And this isn't gentle. I got thoughts in my head, can't get them out. Trying not to think what I'm thinking about. I got thoughts in my head, can't get them out. Trying not to think what I'm thinking about. Hello, this is Alan Shipnuck back for another fire drill. I am delighted to be joined by my frequent wingman, Michael Bamberger. This is a throwback to about 2015 when Michael and I first started podcasting together. Uh, we were not quite early adapters, but there weren't a lot of folks doing podcasts back then. It's not the, the crowded landscape it has become in the golf space. So this is fun. We should um, we should tip our cap to our departed colleague, Ryan French, who was part of these, these Sunday night fire drills for a long time. Uh, Ryan's left the collective to, to pursue some other opportunities, which we're all rooting for him. We all love Ryan. A uh, great human being, fun colleague. We'll miss his random digressions about players none of us have ever heard of. Um, he definitely added a, a an institutional knowledge to these conversations that is hard to replicate. Um, Michael, you want to you wanna, um, send a, a, a oral bouquet of flowers to Ryan here? Yes, very, very much so. Uh, Ryan's become a good friend in a, uh, in a short amount of time. He absolutely has a heart of gold. Uh, he absolutely roots for the underclass, the people that he covers his Monday Q uh, info Twitter feed. Uh, like my friend Mike Donald, the former PGA Tour player, uh, he has a natural reporting ability. He has an immense curiosity. He wants to know what's going on. He reduces things to a very basic level. And, uh, and he's a great uh, friend and, and a great colleague. And, uh, uh, and maybe we'll still have him back from the, on this uh, podcast from time to time because I know how much he enjoyed it. And we both know, Alan, how much he added to it. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, as I told Ryan a, a bunch of times, the, the door's always open. You know, we, uh, there's always a microphone available if he wants to jump back on this pod. We'll see how it all shakes out. It's definitely a transitional time for all of us. But um, anyway, just just a tip of cap to the Ryan to Ryan because uh, uh, we miss that guy. So well, speaking of other colleagues, uh, our colleague Jeff Ogilvy, with whom Alan and I have done a long series of need a fourth podcasts, uh, played in the Puerto Rico tournament uh, this week, and I think he t eleven. I know he played very well. Yeah, it's so nice to see Jeff back between the ropes, and I can sense just in our conversations he's got he's getting some of that competitive fire back. And you know, he he kind of took a couple of years of where he didn't play much competitive golf. He moved his family to Australia, and they went through their own big transition, and and golf was became kind of secondary. But uh, that kind of talent, that kind of imagination, that love for the game, that never goes away. So if you can just get tournament sharp, it'll be really fun to see if. Uh, if Jeff can get on a little run here. And um, now you are, people may be wondering, are you in a, a NASA, you know, headquarters? What's going on back there? You're actually in the press room at Bay Hill. Tell us about the scene well, there, Michael. I'm only 90 miles from Cape Canaveral, so you're not too <laughs> far off. Um, I have a neat memento uh, from today's tournament. This, hey, Luis, how are you? This is a, um, you know, I've been amazed over the years to watch like Phil. Phil will take the cruddiest little nib of a tee and use it on a par three. This is the tee that Max Homa 
used and discarded after one-time use on a par three or in the Bay Hill course. It is one of the most elegant tees I've ever seen. It's got a, it's got a sturdy stem, good point, very cuppy. And uh, so anyway, yes, I'm here at the Bay Hill tournament. Uh, I'm here in the press tent. Uh, the, the winner is being uh, interviewed. He's wearing his red sweater. And uh, it was a wild uh, tournament here. And uh, kind of a great reminder, really, of what just a, I won't call it an ordinary PGA Tour event, but Arnold Palmer Invitational, the Arnold Palmer Invitational, was never like an elite event. It was just Arnie's event. Now, of course, it'll have, quote, elevated status. But I was only here a couple of days. Uh, but from, from what I was here, it was just like a lot of people having a good time, great weather, great field, flat, easy walking golf course, and an exciting tournament. You know, kind of just what the PGA Tour is all about. Yeah, I mean, Tiger's knack for winning that tournament and the rapport he always had with Arnie certainly elevated it. I would say pre and post Tiger, it, it, it lost some luster and clearly with uh, Mr. Palmer no longer there to serve as a master of ceremonies, it, it's, it's, it's been lacking, but the field th- this year was immense because of the elevated slash designated status and it was fun. I mean, a lot of, lot of star power on the leaderboard. Uh, you know, John Rom, they were going to just give him the trophy on Thursday after he shot an incredible first round, but he, he kind of lost his mind out there. I mean, I've come to like Bay Hill. I, the course itself doesn't do much for me, but it's basically like the second U.S. Open of the year, or it's the first one. It's like a, it's like a precursor because they set it up so challenging with brick hard greens and long rough and skinny fairways it seems like they always have a lot of front flags on sunday you got to hit it over the water but the green is as hard as a rock and the, the ball just skips to the, the back bunker or into the rough and then you've got these crazy up and downs or two putts and it's really a war of attrition and you know max homa who's been one of the two or three hottest players in the world he went backwards today in a big way rom was never seen again after thursday like this course gets in the head of some really great players and uh and you, you know, obviously, you were out there watching Jordan Spieth. I mean, fourteen through seventeen, he missed he missed four putts in a row that were quite short, and that was really what kept him out out of the winner's circle. What were your impressions of of Jordan and just just this war of attrition out there? It it really is like a U.S. Open course because the rough is so penal and the fairways are, are so firm and fast. I never I've been coming here for a lot of years. I never saw so many guys play irons off of par four tees uh, or hybrids off the par fives uh, that I did this week because they're so afraid of driving it uh, through the fairway and into the rough. And some of those, some of those rough lies can be really gnarly, almost chip out, pitch out, not definitely not go for it, especially with, you know, all the lakes they have in this golf course. Uh, so it was neat. It was neat to see. And um, I believe that applause is for Ryan French. Uh, and uh, it, yeah, it's a short golf course, even though it might be 7,400 yards on the card. But as firm as they have it, and as and as long as the ball runs with these uh, with these hooded irons. So it does sort of play almost like a traditional U.S. Open course, and it was sort of a war of attrition. Uh, uh, Spieth should have won this thing by three shots. He also missed a putt on 12. That was three and a half feet. You know, he putted very poorly, no matter what he says. He... You know, he has those stretches where he can't, he'll, he's, he seems like he's more likely to make a 20 footer than he is a six footer. Like he just, I think it's his overall jumpiness where 
it just he gets mental. He doesn't know whether to look at the hole or look at the ball. And he's a little bit like Mickelson, who sometimes and like Fred Couples before him, where these these immense talents, but sometimes it just feels like they lose their feel for the short putts. And it it's part of what's stressful. I mean, like he was chipping in, he was hitting, he was hitting some great iron shots, but if he was just like a cat on a hot, hot tin roof out there on the greens and you make it, it's like no hole is ever over with Jordan. We know that both good and bad. And it was a little dispiriting because I, I thought that Tita green, he played really well. And it seems like his game is in good working order. Now that we're in, you know, Bay Hill to me is kind of like the run up. That's you've already, we've already been in Florida for a while, but somehow Bay Hill is like, now it's a sprint to Augusta. And, so I guess I'm encouraged by the way that Jordan hit the ball and navigated the course and kept seemed like he kept his cool until the back nine on Sunday. Then he went completely mental. And so I don't know what to make of it. Um, yeah. what, what are your impressions of yeah. his, his, just how he handled it emotionally, the whole thing? And, and, and by the way, you know, speaking of uh, major winners, uh, Rory McIlroy, Canley hasn't won a major, but he's right there. Shuffler, Hatton hasn't, but he, you know, he's right there. I mean, uh, uh, Jason Day, Hovland, not a major winner, Fitzpatrick. I mean, you really had it really is a classic case of a good hard golf course with the cream rising in the crop, but weirdness ensuing too, uh, which is, which is, you know, the ultimate beauty of 72 hole stroke play golf with a big field period. Um, uh, Jordan does not look, I love Jordan. You love Jordan. He does not look ready for prime time to me. He looks really unsure with the driver. Uh, he pitches the ball like an absolute demon. I mean, pitches it beautifully and if he lag putts beautifully, some of them go in the hole. And then you know what he's going to do from four feet. So how are you going to play Augusta National under those conditions? And how are you going to play uh, Oak Hill for the PGA Championship under those conditions? But, and this has been the case for a while now, he is making incremental improvements. And um, he's not the player he was five years ago, which is weird. But he's not, But he's better than the player he was three years ago, that's for sure. It's funny how we talk about Jordan. Like, you know, we all seize on the moral victories and the little kernels of good news. Oh, he he pitched it great this week. You know, like, I mean, the guy's already a Hall of Famer. He had one of the greatest seasons in golf history. Um, but he, he's there's that fragility there that makes him so compelling. And it, to be a fan of Spieth, and I think we're all a fan of Spieth on some level, it's maddening. And uh, I mean, it's certainly the game's way more interesting when he's playing well, but. It's also uh, he, he, he can he can give you an ulcer, so I, that's that's the fun of following Jordan. What was it like for you watching at home? Did you find yourself rooting? I know you root for the story. We root for the story, but who are you actually oh. rooting for? Oh, Jordan, absolutely, because he is. I mean, that's he's the best story. Like if we if Jordan could go on another run and and get back to where close to where he was, I mean, he he galvanizes golf twitter in a way that almost no other player does and he's just such an appealing person he's a great ambassador for the for golf etc cetera, etc cetera. but he's just so compelling to watch and he's so fun to watch and uh so yeah i mean we need speed to win more we need speed to contend in majors that that would be a big deal but as you said it just doesn't seem like he's his game's quite there so i was absolutely rooting for him to get it done and i mean he played beautifully for uh, you know the first 10 or 11 12 holes but then it just it just went sideways and we we you know, we should definitely uh, acknowledge the winner of the tournament, Kurt Kitayama, as as Paul Azinger kept saying on TV. He had about seven different pronunciations. Kitayama. Like he was just really going in on it. I don't know what Zinger was doing, but it generated some conversation. But 
Kurt Kitayama is a is one of those guys who you know has made a great living. He's been in the top fifty. He could never get it across the line, and there's. He has, he has a new caddy on his bag, Tim Tucker, who somehow survived the Bryson experiment. So, you know, he's got some some fortitude and uh, great to see him get it done, especially with that, that weird triple bogey on the ninth hole. I mean, I, I'm sure Justin Ray or someone else has researched how many tour winners have made a triple bogey in the final round in, in recent years, but it can't be many. So that big time performance by him. And it's always fun to see a guy win for the first time and, and, and you know, we, we we use this term probably too often, life changing. But this is a life changing win for him. Not only a tour winner, but elevated status. He's got the exemption. He's going to be in all the all the majors. He's going to make it to the tour championship probably. Like this, this is the right year in golf to have a breakthrough, and he just had a major breakthrough. To make a two on seventeen is astonishing because I mean I'm I'm standing on the back of the team thinking maybe my best three wood could reach you know and to uh, to you know they're hitting I don't know a middle iron. And make it a putt. Uh, that's big time golf. When uh, when you're fighting that triple bogey for the rest of the day, you know you're going to fight it. You're in the last group. You got a caddy who knows what it's like to see a guy step up and hit big time shots in big time situations. So to a little tiny degree, you're probably trying to play for the caddy a little bit, not too much, but it is part of it. Uh, so yeah, it's neat, and um, you know it's a great statement about full field golf with a cut. Uh, and let's just talk about the cut for a second, Alan, because that's been in the news a lot. Well, let's just start with your feeling about Alan. You've you've been to Live Golf probably more than any other report, except for maybe Bob Herrick. Um, what's your feeling about the difference between tournament golf with and without a cut? And I guess we got to bring in the WGC events into that conversation. Yeah, I love how primal the cut is. You know, it's just such a throwback, like. You get to the t- you get to the course on Monday, and you're grinding and you're practicing and you've, you're 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 paying your hotel and your food and your and all the bills and your caddy and you know you can you can just hear the cash register ring in the background. You make one or two mistakes and you're done. You're gone. You're down the road. You don't get a dollar. And uh, of course, that's sort of I kind of changed this year with all the players getting a stipend on the PGA Tour. But still, that that feeling of you're living on the edge and okay, Roy McIlroy misses a cut. It's it's irritating, but it doesn't affect him. But you've got rookies or you've got guys who are just trying to hang on. Like there is, There used to be financial pressure to make the cut. And um, there's, there's still the emotional um, component to it. I mean, it's the ultimate rejection. It's like you or I filing a story and the editor saying that's not good enough to print. You know, <laughs> like the, it does, it's a blow to the self-esteem. It also especially if you're a young player, you're someone trying to generate momentum or you're, you're trying to work on something in your game. Like you're denied two tournament rounds. It has an effect. I mean, you miss a few cuts in a row and all of a sudden you're just not getting the reps you need. And so I like how old school the cut is. You know, as an entertainment product, it makes no sense because, and you know, Rory talked about this. Phil Mickelson's talked about this for years. If you're, if you're a kid in Orlando and your favorite player is, um, you know, pick a guy who who was down the road on Friday afternoon and you can't get out of school and you come on Saturday and you're so excited to see this person play and they miss the cut and they're not there. Like that's a real letdown for the fans. It makes no sense from a TV standpoint or for the sponsors. You want your big name players guaranteed on the weekend when most people are watching golf. And you know, if 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 these if if these guys miss the cut, it 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 it's a negative for the tournament in every possible way. So I understand the reasoning why 
they've done away with it. But um, I feel like something essential has kind of been lost, and it's a throwback to a, a different era. And in today's soft modern society, maybe we, maybe the cut is is anachronism, but that that's why I liked it. But I also understand why it's gone or going going the way of the the uh, the Edsel. You, you know why Rory McIlroy and Phil Mickelson made that argument? Tell me. Because they're Rory McIlroy and Phil Mickelson. In other words, they're not worried. They're not worried about that kid in the school. They just want to know if they have a bad Friday, they can still play on the weekend. Uh, I don't buy that argument, not in the, not one slightest bit. There is something to be said for for tradition, and I and I'm not saying tradition like golf and sports and life don't evolve because, of course, they do. But the cut is a fundamental thing, and I mean, Kitjama could have easily, of course, missed this week's cut. Jim Herman, uh, who's a buddy of mine, uh, made the cut on the number at Honda. Had a great weekend. I think he top 15 for sure, made a check. You know, he's playing for a pension. He's playing to keep uh, status. Tiger Woods has said repeatedly um, that, you know, of all the many records he has, uh, his cut streak is the record that he's proudest of because he means he never, ever, ever mailed it in on a Friday after a bad Thursday. Um, it's The cut is tremendously democratizing. Now, Phil Mickelson, Rory McIlroy here, they might actually agree on something. They might say, well, the cut is years in the making or two years or one year or, you know, whatever in the making, because that's how we got in this position to be in this 80 man field in the first place. But it's not really true. The cut is democratizing because you have enough skill to get into this field of let's call it 144. And even if it goes down to 125, you know, look for Arnold's tournament or, or J- tigers or, or jacks. Everybody starts Thursday on the same level. Whether you're whether you're Kirk or whether you're Roy McIlroy or Harris English or or, or or Patrick Cantley, and that is a tremendous thrill. If that kid is going to miss school, if, if that kid's not going to make it till the weekend, he should skip school and get on his bike and uh, <laughs> and forge a note. I mean, come on and man up. I don't buy any of that. That is horseshit. <laughs> Oh, you're, you just, you're describing a Norman Rockwell painting. I mean, come on, Michael, like, you know, Colin Morikawa missed the cut. He's now a Netflix star. People would have loved to have watched him on Saturday and Sunday. I mean, the Colin Morikawa is a Netflix star. Alan, you're around golf. I'm being being generous. When does anybody ever stop you at a cocktail party and say to you, tell me about that Colin Morikawa. (laughs) <laughs> well Ever. okay but i mean you know hideki matsuyama biggest star in, in, in on an entire continent he missed the cut that's you know, true i'm sure the, the tv ratings plummeted in japan for the bay hill classic on saturday and sunday like um you know you, i'm just saying play better like, dude play better. okay well you, oh, michael's know. become the play better troll i love it um, i mean yes i'm not fully defending this this new version of the pga tour but i think it's a nod to market forces and alan name me name me a wgc event is that what they call it? wgc world golf yes. championship WG, name me one not counting like tiger at firestone or some weirdness or adam scott at firestone would be a better example name me one you can do any play-by-play and remember anything resembling emotion by sunday evening yeah it the wcs were mostly a dud there's no doubt and i mean on some level the cut is humane because if if you're if you're a great player and you're in bad form 
do you want to have to slog it out on Saturday and Sunday when you're 20 shots back? I mean, um, you're going to see the, the, the give a shit meter on, at some of these events for these guys who are, you know, when they when they play bad, they're used to having the weekend off. And, uh, so, but you know, just, just to make sure all the listeners are with us here, there was a big news break early in the week at Bay Hill because Jay Monahan had a players only meeting on Tuesday night. And the, they talked about what the, the, it's been a, a huge question. What are the designated slash elevated events going to look like in 24? 23 was always going to be this transitional year. They, they, this Everything was done on the fly, came out of the Delaware secret meeting. The tour just kind of had to, the center had to hold for 2023 while they sort everything out. And so they've announced for 24 that they're going to be, all these designated events are going to be no cut. The field's going to be very small, 70 to 80 players. And that's it. And it's very much like a world golf championship, which is a franchise that has basically died. Of course, you can't talk about this without acknowledging that this is the live golf model, small field, no cut, guaranteed money. And, you know, Michael and I have both made the point, I think, previously that the the best argument the PJ Tour had in, in this battle for, for the soul of golf was that we are pure competition and those guys are just getting paid and it's more of an exhibition. And certainly losing the cut... Um, that 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 eliminates a lot of that discussion. Now, week to week, the other 30-plus events on the PGA Tour are going to be fulfilled, and they're going to have a 36-hole cut. So there's still going to be that old model, but the biggest, now the most important, the most scrutinized events have definitely gone down the live road, um, in, in at least in appearance. Now, I did a podcast with Peter Malnati and other players have talked about it. it's different because Live truly is a closed shop. These guys are guaranteed to be on there for the whole year. They're the same 48 players are going to play in every tournament, whereas they've built into this tour model. There's going to be churn and there's going to be ways to play your way into the elevated events. So if you're, you know, Kurt Kitayama and you get on a heater early in the year, you can play your way into the field. It's not totally closed shop. We'll, we'll have to see how that plays out in actuality. You know, Malnati talked about thousands of computer models and, Looked like maybe up to a third of the of the the field would turn over year to year, but um, that's an open question in how it's going to play out in, in real life. So there's differences, but they're subtle. And I think from an appearance standpoint, the tour took a step backwards here by by getting away from its roots. And I, I know you agree with that, Michael. I do, I, and I don't want to dismiss because I'm not at all the value of having the best players on the PJ Tour in the same field more often than they were in the Phil and Tiger era, because that was not working where it did work in Jack and Arnie's day. Um, so something had to give, something had to change. And even though it's such a hokey, lousy phrase, but this elevated event, but having some big money, you know, distinguishing between Tiger's event, Jack's event, Arnold's event, the four majors, the players, some other historic events, and somehow creating an atmosphere or a payday where it's going to be irresistible for the best players to be there. Well, that's how Greg Norman came to the United States in the first place. That's why Seve experimented playing the United States was, was the best players, the best courses and the, and the best paydays. Um, but once you go down that road and then you start tinkering with the fundamental value of what golf is, which is, you know, fair competition for everybody in the field. Um, then I think you've gone too far and I'm not pretending to understand it, but, you know, with all due respect to Peter and, you know, and the, and the outstanding uh, interview you did with him, um, if you need all these computer models to figure out what your sport is in the first place, that's not a good sign. Because Michael Jordan played the same game as Bob Cousy, you know, 
yeah, minor changes, but not really, really. And they're both legends for all time. And if you if you made the basket nine five or made the ball smaller, you'd have a different game. These are institutions in our life, Alan. These sports that we love are institutions in our life. And they have to be tinkered with very gently. And this isn't gentle. Well, that's well said. I mean, it speaks to a larger thing. I mean, it's funny how Phil just provided a roadmap for all this and and that freighted phone call I had with him because, you know, one of the things he went on and on about was the imbalance in the governance on tour in that the stars drive the whole product and they need to be catered to, but there's a vast number of quote unquote journeymen slash middle-class tour players and they have all the votes. And so the stars really couldn't get any, couldn't make any structural change. Anything anything that went up for a vote, the default was always going to be more playing opportunities, more trickle down for the guys who are just trying to keep their card and all that stuff. And what we've really seen here is the top players have completely hijacked the tour and they're making all the decisions for themselves. And you can argue that's a good thing. They, you know, people were tuning in to watch Jordan Spieth and Rory McIlroy. Um, you know, they were, they probably weren't tuning in to watch Kurt Kitayama, even though he put on a hell of a show. And so it, it's okay. I mean, you see it in basketball where now the top players are basically de facto GMs and they're picking their own teams that this you see it in college sports now where the nil money gives gives these kids so much more power it's just an evolution where the bureaucracy is is losing out to the star players it it may not be a good thing or a bad thing i it's hard you can you can go back and forth on that but it's just a thing it's just a reality and so um, and this is not new i mean there's nicholas and palmer who invented the modern pga tour in 1968 with their rebellion um, you know, Jack came back for seconds in 1983 and tried to get Dean Beeman fired. It kind of backfired on him, but like the the top players have always wanted to have more say and more control. And of course, they're going to shape things that are beneficial for them. But it just finally has happened in golf. And you, you know, Roy McIlroy, Tiger Woods, like they seem to be acting in the best interests of the tour. They're asked, they're also acting in their self interest. They're making a ton of money in different ways. They've, they've created their own breakaway league that, and um, that's a competitor in some ways for eyeballs with, with the PGA tour, but they have the tours blessing because they have to keep the top players happy. And so it, it's, it's just an interesting moment in the sport where, where the power structure has, has shifted and it's not about the commissioner and it's not about the guys who are 50 to 150 on the money list. Like it's, it's about the top stars and they have, they have reshaped the whole tour into in their own image. And, we're going to see how it plays out. I mean, if, if they turn it into a, a bad product and the fans lose interest, then that's going to affect their own their own livelihoods. But in the short term, they're getting what they want. Alan, as somebody once said, you've got the best words. <laughs> but if it were 12 golfers, would you say that's too few? <laughs> 12 golfers per tournament? <laughs> I'm just curious. Yeah, that, yeah. Oh, of course. Would you say that's too few? Okay. Of course, yeah, that'd be boring. Okay. All right. Okay. All right, let me ask you this. How often does Justin Thomas's name just come into your mind idly over the course of the day? Or Colin Marikawa, or Matt Fitzpatrick, or Victor Hovland, or Jason Day? I don't even know who Bradley is on this leaderboard. There's a number of them. Um, in other words, 
These players that you speak of as stars, they're not stars. They're just really good at golf. And the reason we're drawn to them at all is because they're beating big fields of other guys, all of whom are really good at golf. The difference between Harris English and Rory McIlroy is a thin, thin line. And four times out of ten, Harris English actually can beat Rory McIlroy. And we're looking to see what's going to happen on the on the margins, to use a phrase that a friend of mine uses. Yeah, that's well that's, said. I mean, that's that's tournament golf, and that's the competitive impulse that made us drawn to this game in the first place. And when you really start to examine what the Phil Mickelsons and the Rory McIlroy's, it's hilarious that we're talking about them in the same breath, given how different they are. It's really about making more money. And James Con- James Hahn, excuse me, uh, not James Con. James Hahn said this beautifully in an interview with Golf Week, I think just last week. And I agreed with every word that he said. Uh, and and I understand I understand the value of true star power. Even Big Jack himself didn't have star power. He had greatness power. Even now, Tiger is a special case, really. He's hard to classify. Arnold, of course, had star power. Hogan didn't have star power. He had greatness power. So I and you you achieve you we really can find out who's great by beating everybody. You know, when Ted Williams bat 406, he beat the whole league in hitting. It wasn't just like he had one pitcher's number, he had everybody's number. And that's what made it such a monumental feat to bat to bat over four hundred. So yeah. I just feel like I understand they want to get more top players in the field, but I think they're overdoing it, actually. Well, that's, I that's have another subject for you if you want me to segue here. Uh, go ahead. Alf. No, the floor is you yours. I'm, I'm enjoying the passion. Keep going. No, no, finish. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. You finish your one thought, and then I got something that no one, uh, Marshall, Alan, you and I have a lot of experience in this. These Marshalls, God bless them, are the most boring conversationalists in the world. <laughs> Today, I talked to a marshal who was unbelievably attuned to golf and had an observation that I never considered that I'm going to lay out on you here in a minute. But you finish that one thought about competitiveness, and then we'll move on here. The suspense is killing me. Well, all I was going to say is, ironically, the world golf ranking, which of, of course is under siege right now, agrees with your assessment. I mean, they the whole formula has been recast to favor full fields under the premise that it's harder to beat 155 guys than it is to beat 79 or 69 guys, no matter who they are. Like this has been baked into the math. And so that's what's ironic is these these small little um, elevated events are going to get less world ranking points than, than they could have because the world ranking has put its official stamp of approval on the concept that beating a lot of players is harder than beating a smaller number, irrespective of, of where they might rank in the ranking. So um, anyway, let's hear about this, Marshall. You have my full attention. The marshal said to me, okay, this course is 7,400 yards is way too short. Augusta National, what is Augusta National, 75? Yeah, a little more. Way too short. Okay. Like a joke compared to what what, what they play with a blotta ball and a wooden club. Any fantasy that Jack Nicklaus or anybody else might have had about the ball being rolled back, this is straight from the marshal. I wish I had the guy's name. The chance of that happening now with the emergence of Live Golf is 0.0. Because Live Golf, of course, is, you know, golf but louder, music, shotgun, that whole thing. Also, 
the power game. Brooks Kepka, Dustin Johnson, Phil Mickelson, everybody else who can bomb it, bomb it, bomb it. And if the PJ Tour, the USJ said, oh, we want a smaller ball. We want a shorter course. We want that. <laughs> it would get laughed out of existence, even though it would be better for golf every way to Sunday afternoon to have shorter golf courses <laughs> with shorter walks, more shot making and all the rest. It will never happen because of the Saudis' incredible ability to, to use the word of the moment, disrupt. And they have been very effective. <laughs> I agree with the Mar- what the Marshall said. I never thought about and I agree that. Alan, tell me your take on the Marshall's well, insight. This is the wildest thing about this moment in golf. Mohammed bin Salman is affecting Jordan Spieth's club selection on the par fours at Bay Hill. Like, But you're right. I mean, I, I said, I don't know, four or five years ago that to really test the tour players, a course has to be 10,000 yards. And everyone was so mad about it, but it's just true. If you want guys to have to hit long irons into par fours and some par threes and have a, a few three-shot par fives, I mean, 7,500 yards is nothing. That's driver wedge. And um, But yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, the um, Liv would just, they would just, if the USGA did, and I don't think they, they're in that business, and I think it's Mike Wan's personality, but they've sort of been lumbering towards this idea of bifurcation at least on the pro level and and Juan has signaled his support I don't I don't know if you'd do it unilaterally but you know live golf would just be like ah local rule we're keeping the old equipment and and you're right people want to watch Dustin Johnson drive it 360 they want to watch him drive it you know 280 and so um I hadn't thought of it in those terms I think your marshal might be a genius and we should get him on the podcast but um yeah that's that's a factor. I mean, I'm embarrassed. I didn't get his name, but that was a good insight. Yeah. And it's even, I mean, I, if you really want to go, go have a, a dark chilling thought is are, are like the, is the Delaware 23, are they going to start dictating course conditions? Are they, are they going to tell the super at Bay Hill? You know what? It's not fun to play under these conditions. Like water the greens, man, cut the rough. Like you're making us look bad. And because they hold all the cards and they, you know, the whole tour is now catering to these guys. Is that going to happen? I don't know, but you could see it. I mean, if, if they're trying to make golf more fun and more accessible and, and, uh, you know, like John Rom, certainly he's, he's limping out of here with his tail between his legs. And, um, it's, it's an interesting thought. Like how now the, the, now the players have been given a taste of this power. How far are they going to go? Are they going to demand that the, the tour has its own set of rules? I mean, like, um, that internal out of bounds that, that almost cost Kurt Kitayama this tournament. Like, you know, maybe that next year that's going to get redone because Patrick Cantley is going to throw a fit about it. And, you know, in some, some meeting, like, I don't, I don't know where this is going. It, it's fascinating to think when, when all of a sudden you let the, let the players have too much power. Um, we'll see how it plays out. There could be a whole trickle down, but I think, I think that Marshall's onto something. Yeah. I think the, the, the turning point for me in recognizing that the, uh, the power structure had changed was really Oakmont. Was that 2016 when, when Dustin Johnson went to Oakmont and there was everybody sided with Dustin Johnson and nobody sided with the USA it was a hundred percent in favor of Dustin Johnson. Yeah, man, you got screwed. And, and the USGA rather than saying, no, actually our job is to administer the game as best we can. And it was a confusing situation and we had to find out what was right. Nobody cared about that. Everyone cared about, yeah, man, Dustin Johnson, you got screwed. 
when the fact is that ball moved under his watch. Right. And what was interesting about that situation was that it happened in real time because players who had finished early or missed the cut because the cut matters, they were tweeting at the USGA as it was all playing out while Dustin was still on the, the 14th hole or whatever. It was They helped shape the debate in real time. And so that, that was an interesting case study for sure. But um, yeah, it's, it, it's going to be interesting. I actually have a call um, on tomorrow or Tuesday with the tournament director of um, a long time event on the PGA tour. I, I can say no more than that because he doesn't, we, I had to agree to certain rules because he doesn't want to, and he fears retribution, but he's extremely upset about the way the tour has restructured itself because his event is never going to be elevated. And he's now looking at a future. Really? Of, yeah. It's like, bleak. Like even if, the, even if, the, even if it, if he got twenty five million, they wouldn't elevate it. You see, I think in this day and age, where money absolutely rules, if this guy could come up with twenty five million, it would be elevated. Without knowing his, I don't even know if it's a man Maybe. or not. But I mean, this the, person is. It's where the tournament falls on the schedule as it relates to other events that will be elevated. Something would have to really change, and the current sponsor is basically maxed out now. And there's no way they're going to find another $10 million. Like they were already questioning the commitment about it. Does this make, does this pencil out for us anyway? And you double the price. Like you're right. Anything's possible. And the tour is going to try and move the elevated events around just, just to make people happy. Like I'm excited because they're going to pebbles going to be elevated next year and it's not it has not officially been announced but everyone locally kind of knows that to be the case and other players have has whispered about it but that's going to be cool to finally get a great field at pebble beach and you know they're probably going to drop the amateurs after 36 holes they're only going to play two courses instead of three i mean the entire charm and structure and history of that tournament is going to sort of be discarded but it's just the new world order if you want if you want to get all the top players, then you got to play ball. And again, the players have the power. They don't. They don't want to play with amateurs. They don't want to have to learn a third course. Like, okay, fine, guys, whatever it takes to get you here. And um, so it's. I'll be curious to talk in more detail with uh, with this tournament director. I've already interviewed a few. They're very skittish about going on the record, but um, they definitely they fear for the future of the tour, be because. You're still. You now have 30 events that are going to struggle to get anybody. And, and Peter Malnati, I love Peter Malnati. He's a gent. I, I think he made some good points. But he was basically saying, "Well, you've got this middle tier of guys that are going to carry the tour now because they have to play a lot to try and get the elevated." And you know, he cited Gary Woodland and um, and Frankie Molinari, who I know you love, and Billy Horschel. Like those are his examples. Like this is going to be great for the tour because they're going to play John Deere. They're going to play these other events because they're not in the elevators, but they want to get there. And if you're pinning your entire business model on Francesco Molinari and Gary Woodland and Billy Horschel, that's a tough sell for these sponsors. You know, if you're not going to get the stars, um, that that middle that middle tier, I don't think is enough to really in, in bring the sponsors back. So. We're heading into a whole new era on the tour, and there's going to be it's great eight weeks a year when when these guys are playing, and it's obviously been it's been fun. I mean, you went from from Kapalua to Phoenix to Riviera to Bay Hill, like it's been bang, 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 and, and these have all been fun events. And 
The question is what's going to happen in the weeks in between and how much contraction is there going to be? And Adam Scott said it to me at Kapalui. He's like, the market's going to decide. It's that simple. Like we're going to see the sponsors are going to leave. We know that. How many? What, what's going what's, what's to happen week to week? Like those are the unknowns. He's like, the, he's like top guys are getting what they want, but what's that going to mean for the whole tour? It's, it's an open question. And that's just been, that's been codified now. And uh, it's going to be fascinating to watch it play out. I, I'm as interested in anybody else because we don't know. I think you're more interested in the most. Alan, if, <laughs> if you were at the, if you were at the, um, if you were at the, uh, Players Championship uh, in uh, Commissioner Jay Monahan's uh, Tuesday press conference. You had just one chance to ask him a question in a public forum, which I know is not your thing or mine. Um, what would you ask him? I will say, as I've you know, I've talked about this. I think people know I'm writing a book about this, the live versus the tour, and all the subplots. And I've learned so much and I've tunneled so deep. And a lot of people have told me a lot of things that are, are not public knowledge. My, my analysis of Monaghan's performance has um, been elevated. You know, he did some things in the background that turned out to be quite effective. And even though his response was, seemed a little flat footed, you look at the players they've held on to. I mean, I don't think if you, if you, Maybe my question, actually, this might be my question for Monahan. If there was a draft and you could pick any players you want off of live and bring them back to the tour, no harm, no foul, who would you want? And he would probably only say Dustin Johnson. I'm not sure that too many of those other guys are missed. And there maybe Cam Smith because he's he's such a transcendent talent, but to your earlier point, he's not really a star. I mean, he he could walk around at the mall here in Monterey and no one would know who he is. And He's kind of an introvert. I mean, he, he doesn't give you much in the interviews, and um, he's not dashingly handsome like like an Adam Scott. Like who? I'm not sure that that Monahan would want too many of those guys back in any scenario, other than Dustin. And so, um, you know, the the tour has held on to this core of really nice guys. Uh, you know, the the Rorys, the, the Max Homas, the uh, I mean, the John Roms. Like these are gents, and they're great players. And now they're getting them together. I mean. I don't. I don't think. I think for all the all the battering that Monahan has taken, and, and all the thoughts that he's got to go to salvage the situation, I feel like in some ways he's prevailed. I mean, he's he's, he's got more buy-in from his stars than he's ever had. They're getting they're getting more money in their pocket. The, the tour schedule had gotten so bloated that it needed some contraction. It was sort of forced upon him, but it's going to happen and probably make the overall mechanics work better. The players are on board for you know more innovation in the telecast with the the on course interviews and other things like the players kind of realize all right we're in a existential battle here and we've got to give something back and um, so I I'd have to think about my question to Monahan but I like that one like who would you want back and uh, I think it'd be a short list and so um, you know Monahan's weathered the storm and the tour has been reshaped, not fully of, uh, under his own making, but it's a grand experiment. We're going to see what happens, but his top players have never been happier. And the, the second tier tournament directors can grumble all they want, but you know, those, those events were not the ones that drive the tour. They're just not. And so that that's been made very plain and there's a Darwinian component to this, but um if if the tour loses six or eight tournaments, they they still have a full schedule. There's still a lot of playing opportunities, and um, 
it's just all about the stars now and the stars are happy and, and they, they're, they bought into the system and that's just how they're plowing ahead. What would your question be? I, I think that is extreme. I, you know, I, Alan, I think that is a really insightful answer because not, not only has Monaghan weathered the storm because really, and he has because he still has the job, but even more significant, the PJ tour under Monaghan's leadership really has whether you like it or not, whether you're on board with every little thing that's happened or big thing that has happened or not, the PGA Tour could have caved and could have died. Not died. That would be too strong. It could look totally different, and it doesn't. And that required a lot of skill. Um, now, to Phil Mickelson's point, it also required a lot of money, and they had a lot of money. Who knows where these cookie jars were sitting and what out of the blue, they seem to have come up. What's the number, Alan? Well, well, north of a hundred million dollars for twenty-three, right? What is yeah, the number? Do you know? I think it's one hundred fifty-three million dollars. You know, so that was a big help, but they had to make a lot of very uh, a very good place, and um, uh, so they have. You know, they they're going to get through twenty-three, and they're probably going to get through twenty-four. Uh, Long term. Long term, the PGA Tour will just look different if it really goes down this road. I think when it's all said and done, just to speak of three iconic players with iconic or semi-iconic events, uh, Nicholas's Tournament, Memorial, Tigers, Riviera, the Arnold Palmer Invitational here at Bay Hill, um, they will look weird without full fields. And does full field have to be 144? No. You know, the Masters sort of shows that. But there is a grandeur to the U.S. Open and the British Open that the Masters does not have uh, because of um, because of because of the size of the field. Yeah, I think it's true. I mean, it- I don't know. I he, you know, Monahan. Uh, I don't know if Monahan would answer your question. Who would you actually want? Uh, even though I think Dustin Johnson would be the answer, because. Uh, I think Tiger is telling people everybody we lost is somebody I don't want to hang out with except for Dustin Johnson. You know, Charlie Howell, maybe Henrik Stenson, maybe. But I'll say this about Charlie Howell's win. Yeah, it's a Charlie. Charlie Howell's win, and we love Charlie Howell. We've been around Charlie Howell, and he's a great talker. And there's, you know, he's got a great spirit about him. He's been a terrific ambassador for what the PJ Tour represented for a long time. But his win had zero impact personally on me. But really, um, except for his bank account, you know, what did that win actually matter? So then, you know, it's just like some meaningless movie that you see on a Saturday night that you're never going to think about again. I mean, that's well said. At the same time, it's like, um, I don't know. Is it, we'll see. Is Kurt Kitayama's win going to register in the the sports landscape? Is it going to change professional golf? Like, I think w- one of the things that Live Golf made plain is that week to week, the the players are businessmen. They they are trying to maximize their opportunities. They're trying to win as much money as they can, and they're not as romantic about it. Like you know, Phil's grandfather caddied at Pebble Beach. He's won the Clambake five times. He goes to dinner parties all week long. Uh, he's the toast of the town. It's hard to imagine that Phil just renounced the, the Crosby clan big, but I don't think he misses it. It's just like he was there. He did his thing. He always played with the CEO to try and further his endorsement deals. And 
now he's gone. Like I, I think, I think for Charles Howe, if you whether you win in Live Mayakoba or you win at the Honda Classic, I think it feels the same to him in a lot of ways. Uh, the majors are the differentiators. Uh, maybe a couple tournaments that you have some romantic attachment. Everyone wants to win Riviera because it's a great course and because Tiger's the host. But t- that t- didn't mean much to you know uh, Neiman. He was like, ah, he didn't even come back and defend. You know, the players, the fifth major, the crown jewel of the PJ Tour. Cam Smith's not going to be there next week. He don't care. Like, I think that we overrate the sentimentality. These guys are the definition of professional golfer is someone who plays golf for money, and that's what these guys are. And I had an agent tell me last year, it was a great quote. He said, what you have to understand about every professional golfer is they're a whore. And it was a little harsh, but that was that was a, a, a legit sentiment. So I think you and I well, what does that make the agent what does that make the agents? He's the pimp. Um obviously. And um but you and I are prone to um to sentiment and and to romance and to poetry, but for these guys, it's a business, and I, I think that's what Live Golf has made obvious, and uh, and and everything that's followed. You have to look through that lens, and it, it's kind of a drag for for you and I who wanna who wanna wax nostalgic. But the the players are getting what they want, which is more money. That's what they want. It's not about the nostalgia for them. So, um, I I think when you when you look at it in those terms, it all makes more sense. Even though it's sad, uh, I guess we'll be looking. You know, view, view the way. Given what you just said, and I don't disagree with any of it. Um, careers will be shorter, and uh, because you'll you'll make your you'll make big money over a short amount of time, and then you'll play your way off of the live tour, or you'll play your way out of the top eighty on the PGA tour, and you'll have made enough money, and you're not going to want to go start playing, you know, the smaller colonial type events once you had a taste of the. Uh, of, of the elevated events and the long, long Jayhawks kind of career, it'll be over. And, uh, and that'll be, that'll be, uh, to me, it'll be a shame too, but maybe I'm just revealing my attachment to the game that I grew up on, which I'm never going to apologize for because I love that game. Yeah. I mean, we don't want you to apologize. And, you know, there's, there's still a place for the, for the, the surprise winners. I and mean, we saw it at Bay Hill, like, I know that you have an affection for for the, the the golfers who have the powerful lower bodies, the John Roms, the Sayre Packs, you know, with these tree trunk legs and they just like power through the golf swing. And we should we should acknowledge that Kurt Kitayama has one of the all time great nicknames, which is Quadzilla, because his quads are so thick. And um, you know, it was it was fun to see him get it done and it really did change his life. And um as much as that term has been thrown around in golf, like he's this is the year for a break. Well, he's got a job for two years. That's cool. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So there's there's still room for romance, but um, it's become more of a business, and that's just that's just how it is. Uh, okay, I, I'm just gonna we we probably exhausted the subject for today anyway, but I just want to take exception to one thing, and I have the highest regard for Adam Scott, but when Adam Scott is describing to you this business model that will work. I don't agree with it because I think the business model, if you're going to use that phrase for this whole thing, and isn't really a business, even in the in the in the first case, it just sort of turns out to be business, is the fact that people love to play golf and therefore love to see the people who do it best play at the highest level. And that's why Colin Marikawa to the degree has any public position at all is because he plays 
It's not because of his hairdo or his physique or, his, you know, good with, with reporters. It's his golf skill, period. That's what we're drawn to. That's what drives this whole train. And just like it drives <laughs> yeah. Major League Baseball, everybody's played baseball as a kid, just as it's driven, NBA basketball, skiing, and all the rest. When you've got a sport with a huge, massive participation population, and then they get to watch the best of the best do it, it's really neat. And if it's one level lower, like Corn Ferry, or one layer lower, lower like JC Goosey used to be, many levels lower, it's not the same thing. You want to watch the best of the best. Um, that is really, quote, the business model. And it's not a business model at all. It's just human nature. I want to see the best do their thing. Yeah, well, well said. Um, I think we have exhausted this topic, but it's a fascinating one. And, I, you know, I, di I didn't know we were going to go down this road, but... That's that's the fun thing about these podcasts is they, they we just go where where the where the muse takes us. But um, Michael, I'm glad you're at Bay Hill. I can't wait to read your story about Jordan Spieth and all the hijinks uh, on Sunday. And you know we have we have a big event next week, play, Players Championship. I mean, it's going to be weird that Cam Smith's not there. I, it probably won't be mentioned once on NBC or Golf Channel that the defending champion has renounced the tournament, which is supposed to be you know the fifth major, but. If you can set aside those things, you're going to have a lot of great players on an iconic golf course, and it's going to be fun, and you and I will be tuned in. Yeah. I mean, let's talk about where we really are in the golf season because this has been you know, the case now for a few years, March, April, May, June, July. You know, I'm not saying that players is at the same level as the U.S. Open and the British Open because it's not, but the players is a great event. Um, and, of, and, of course, the four majors, and then you take a month off, and then the Ryder Cup. You know, this is the core of the golf season. We're playing and we're watching. And uh, so if you like golf, it's a great time to be alive. I love that. Well said, Michael. Um, and I love the enthusiasm you bring to it. Uh, and that despite the market forces, uh, you still you still are romantic at heart. And we salute you. Uh, this has been another and Fire I want to make a plug for PGA Tour Entertainment. Can I make a plug here for PGA Tour Entertainment? Please. Why? I don't know. I'm sitting in their seat, and they haven't kicked me out, so thank you. <laughs> there you go. Um, I'd like to make a plug for the Classic Wooden Golf Tee by Max Homa. I wish um, I loved anything. in the play golf. I wish I love anything in this world as much as Michael loves a good golf tee. I mean, it's really charming. Um, but <laughs> anyway, thank you for listening. For those of you out there, we appreciate your fidelity and um, we'll be back in your ear soon. So for Michael Bamberger, this is Alan Shipnuck. That was a fire drill. And now we're done. I bet big and I played to win. Made a fortune when my ship came in. Ran the table, never thought I could fall Then the winter time hit me like a cannonball And now I can't shake this losing streak Every road I take is a dead-end street I got thoughts in my head, can't get them out Trying not to think what I'm thinking about I got thoughts in my head, can't get them out Trying not to think what I'm thinking about Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury 
the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath then a two-hour nap. Because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane, back to reality. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Terms apply.